This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Nicholas Kristof. He's an op-ed columnist with The New York Times. I spoke with him on September 3, 2010, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in a private recording studio in New York City. This interview is included in our show, Journalism and Compassion. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. Um, hurricane it isn't, and it also wasn't raining on us, so it was a pretty good day to walk over. Sweet. You sound good to me. Chris, hello? Should I say hello? Uh, You're welcome to say hello. Hi. <laughs> can you hear me? I sure can. Hi, it's Krista Tippett. Hey, Krista. Really nice to make your acquaintance this way. Yeah, you up. too. Nice to meet you in person, thank- too, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> down the road sometime. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm so glad you've... Uh, You've agreed to take the time to do this, and um, I wondered if you know that we're changing the name of the program? I didn't know that. Okay, so you're actually going to be one of the first uh, uh, programs we do with the new name. And, which um, is? Well, which is, uh, we're changing the name from Speaking of Faith to Being. So instead of Speaking of Faith with Krista Tippett, it's going to be Krista Tippett on Being. Um, which is, uh, uh, for a lot of reasons, I think the the faith title. This, you know, this is a, in public radio land. This is a young project, and um, we've evolved. And I think that the the speaking of faith title is just not spacious enough for what the show has become. And then the word faith is loaded, and right. we keep, you know, we just. I I kind of thought we could unload it. I I thought it was actually really important when we first st- started this in the early two thousands that. That there was a show on public radio which used the word faith and kind right, of signaled right. that it that it can't be co-opted, but in fact, um, in fact, it's a stumbling block. It's an, it's an obstacle. Hmm. Yeah. So, and the being being is very big. Um, it's this is still you know we're still saying our, our our tagline is still that this is a program about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Okay. And that's what we've grown into. And so the show isn't changing. But um, if you've heard it, then um, I mean, it's... I, yeah, I know I've I've. I heard it many, many, many times. It uh, when I um, when I do my weekend runs, oh, I great. I get it on. Uh, I time my runs to to, to you, Krista. Oh, so. I love that. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we probably this will be for when we meet one day. I think we know quite a few people in common. Um, I was a time stringer in divided Berlin in the early eighties. Uh, okay. I think anyway, but we'll do that. We'll do that another time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so let's see. Well, so so what I want to talk about. So you know, when I think about the new the title, um, I think about that that what we have always been pursuing, in in some contrast to our public discussions about matters of faith and meaning, uh, rather than talking talking drawing out competing answers or beliefs, even we've we've really tried to probe the animating questions. Uh, behind this part of life, you know, which is what is what does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And um, and I think that you know your journalism um, has spoken in many ways to precisely those questions. So um, so that's Great. what I just uh, want to talk about for this next few like that's you know, who, who you are, what you've learned, and some of the ethical perspective you've gained on life in our time. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. Okay. I'm delighted. All right. Um, so let's start. Uh, first of all, I just have to say you grew up on a sheep and cherry farm, which <laughs> which sounds so lovely and also a little bit is a funny con- uh, 
uh, juxtaposition, sheep, sheep and cherries. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I'm probably one of the few people in the New York Times newsroom who knows how to weld uh, or, <laughs> right. or give birth to a lamb. <laughs> oh, yeah. Although both of your parents were scholars. That That's right. right. Mm-hmm. And I, I was I was interested to see that to learn that your father was ethnic Armenian, though I guess right. he grew up in Romania. Is that right? He was born in Romania. Yeah, um, he was. He grew up in an area where the flag was regularly uh, changing, and uh-huh. so it, typically, if you asked my father what his uh, national origins were, he'd say Romanian. Uh, his brother. You know, growing up in the same household would say Polish, and his right. sister would say Armenian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he spoke to his brother when he would call in Polish to his sister in Romanian. Um, oh. So they were um, a somewhat complex and maybe a little bit confused family. Yeah, uh, from that from that world, that vanished world. Um, <clears throat> was was there a was there a spiritual or religious background to your childhood that came from them? Um, was there an Orthodox heritage there? No, uh, not Orthodox. Um, uh, my uh, father, I mean, tradi- he'd grown up kind of as a Catholic Armenian, but um, mm-hmm. then in, in practice in the U.S., uh, uh, practices Roman Catholic, but a very liberal one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Hans Kung was very much all over okay. the, the bookshelf. <laughs> and, and Teilhard de Chardin was one of my father's ah. real heroes. Um, and uh, then my mother is a Presbyterian who is of uh, very deep religious convictions, um, but uh, also quite liberal ones. Mm-hmm. And and I also just wonder, if you look at your childhood, um, do you see the roots of, of what's really become very defining about your journalism of, um, you know, a, a, an interest in compassion and empathy in, in human life and a kind of longing to, to spark that in people? Well, I think that I always had some um, interest in uh, individuals, some drive to try to make a difference. And I think that was one of the things that attracted me to journalism. But I also think it's, you know, would have been entirely possible that I would have ended up a uh, business reporter uh, writing about corporate earnings. And really what uh, changed me onto the trajectory that I ended up on is that I went out and was assigned abroad, lived a good chunk of my life abroad, and just encountered poverty. And that was just, you know, life transforming that mm-hmm. once these issues become real and you see these things, then, the, you know, you can't forget the people you meet and you want to try to make a difference in some way. Where did you first encounter poverty, really, in that way? Maybe um, when I was a student at Oxford, I used to spend the vacations um, traveling around uh, on a, you know, with a backpack. And so um, I remember uh, hopping the ferry from Spain into Morocco and traveling around mm-hmm. Morocco and um, you know, running into a uh, little girl who was begging and taking around her, uh, her grandfather who had uh, river blindness and uh, was blind and, you know, they were begging and they could communicate a little bit in French. And, um, you know, all of a sudden she was very real. Her grandfather was real. And you could imagine them as, you know, people that I'd grown up with or members of my family. Right. And, uh, you know, it just seemed so horrific that this kind of thing should still be happening. You know, something that has impressed me over the years in your journalism is... Um, is that you have uh, you've you've talked about and kind of revealed moments of learning in public, right? That, and, and there's a sense in which you've been more 
I don't, I don't know if vulnerable is the right word, but open that that and which which journalists aren't always, um, you know, uh, it, of course, when you're reporting on things, you're learning, but then you present it as information. and 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 columnists, I think, uh, often, um, you know, wield opinions, let's say, more than you do. But you, you often yield moments of, dis- you often, you know, present moments of discovery. And you're very clear that, that you discovered something and you didn't know this before. And I'm just also curious about, you know, is, is, that, is that an experience you had of, of journalism um, early on? Or is that something that, that has developed for you? Do you know what I'm talking uh- about? Yeah, I mean, maybe because I lived for um, years in, in China, I'm very suspicious of ideologues yeah. <laughs> of whatever complexion. And I think it's really important to um, learn empirically and to test your ideas um, and you know, occasionally be wrong. I also think that it's more um, – that you're more persuasive when you acknowledge that you, know, you have changed your views and, and you explain how that process happened. Um, so – um, and, you know, I think it, um, um, it, it does, it is a little bit, you do feel a little bit naked when you confess right. in a column that you, <laughs> that you screwed up. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I think that it, uh, ultimately gives you a little bit more credibility with readers. Um, but, you know, I still, I think in, it's not an instinct, you know, what you've come to do, I think pretty comfortably, it's not an instinct that's really there in that, in, in, in classic journalistic training. No, I mean, I think we um, often tend to be um, a little bit too defensive yeah. and, um, you know, especially considering that we spend our lives running around, um, you know, poking other people yeah. that, um, you know, maybe uh, we should be a little bit more open to introspection, to um, acknowledgement of, of our mistakes and... Um, and, you know, have a little more of a dialectic with readers where we try to try to correct them sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I spent part of this morning watching the, the documentary that's been made about you, Reporter. I'm, I'm assuming you've seen it. I have. Okay. Uh, it's a little, it's a strange experience. I bet it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's also another role a journalist usually isn't in of being the focus of the the, the, the yeah, hour. and uh, that was strange. I mean, I mm-hmm. I, um, I let this camera crew uh, trail around with me in uh, eastern Congo, um, you know, because I deeply wanted this issue to get a little bit on television. Mm-hmm. But there were times out there where I, I mean, I would have throttled that cameraman if it, <laughs> if it <laughs> wouldn't have undermined my humanitarian image. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but ultimately... I was so impressed with what he did, and uh, you know, I think it really did help uh, get the word about out about what is happening there. I, I think I think it does, and will, and I, I also was really impressed with it. And and um, and as much as as Congo is is the focus, I think also a, a big interest for the people making the film and for the people watching it is is again what motivates you as a journalist. And and um, so you know, there's a line right at the beginning, where he says, "Where they, they you're walking, I think you're walking in Rwanda there at that point. I'm not sure, maybe Congo." And you say, "They're talking about you," and they say, "He's here with a single single objective, to make you care about what's just over uh, the hills." And um, 
so so this this got me thinking as a lot of your writing has gotten me thinking about the role of journalism and the cha- the changing role of journalism. We talk a lot about the changing role of journalism in terms of different platforms, right? Yeah. But um <laughs> I, I mean I I guess that um, the way I see it, when I first got the column uh, after uh, 9-11, after 2001, mm-hmm. then, you know, I thought, okay, I'll be this um, pundit, I'll fire out these opinions, I'll change people's minds over, you know, over breakfast. Yeah. And I tur- it turned out that it really doesn't work that way, that by and large, if I write about an issue that people have already thought about, then... It should be like uh, the, the political news of the day. Well, the political news of the day. Mm-hmm. Then people who start out agreeing with me think I'm brilliant, and people who start out disagreeing with me think I've utterly missed the point. And so... Over time, I came to think that, in fact, uh, the power of a column and maybe more broadly the power of journalism isn't so much to change people's minds on issues that are already on the agenda, but rather it's the capacity to shine a spotlight on some issue and then thereby project it on the agenda. Mm -hmm. And on so many of the issues that I care deeply about, the reason that they're not being addressed is simply because they're not on the agenda. And uh, shining a spotlight and making people uncomfortable about what they see in that spotlight, I think truly is the first step toward getting more resources and more attention and more energy dedicated to solving them. And I know that Darfur is one example that people often cite with you, um, that you really opened uh, the world's eyes to that, or at least U.S. eyes to that in a way that hadn't happened before. Is that also, I mean, would that be your example that would first come to mind? Um. There'd be a few in there, you know, I don't want to choose which is my favorite child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, Darfur would be one. Uh, sex trafficking would be another. Um, maternal mortality and fistula uh, would be mm-hmm. uh, would be another. Um, and again, I, I, to me, this strikes me as a, as a real kind of 21st century version of, of what, a, what an op-ed columnist in The New York Times might do. You know, that, that maybe it has as much to do with globalization um, and and also, you know, again to this idea of of motivation, I I I sense um, I'm aware, and I know you're aware of that. In many ways, we're having to re-examine the notion of objectivity. You know what that means, what the limits of it are, how how true it's been up to now. And I mean, do you feel that also the kind this kind of journalism that you're doing? I mean, shining a light on places and problems that people should know about and should mobilize about, um, that, that, that there's a shift there in a journalistic ethos as well? And how, I mean, how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think traditionally um, uh, both historians and journalists essentially wrote about what, um, you know, in traditional terms, what the king said yesterday, mm-hmm. or in modern terms, what the president uh, announced. And that over time, you began to see uh, historians over the last few decades increasingly look at what ordinary people were doing. And likewise, I think we in journalism are broadening our sense of what history is and what our first rough draft should be, and looking at these broader trends. And, you know, um, that was really something that uh, my wife, uh, Cheryl Wadon, who's also a journalist, and mm-hmm. I, you know, that over time we began to rethink what kinds of things we should be writing on. And in particular, um, in China, for example, the uh, one of the milestones of our careers was covering the Tiananmen Square uh, demonstrations and the massacre that resulted, killing hundreds of people. Um, 
you know, that I was there on Tiananmen Square. I was revolted by what I saw um, for weeks. Uh, every story we wrote uh, was on the front page. Right. But but then um, the next year we came across a study indicating that every year in China, 39,000 baby girls were dying because they didn't get the same food and health care as boys. Mm. And we never given one column inch to that issue. And that there were something like 50 million women who were missing in China um, discriminated against to death, in effect, and we never covered that at all. And it, it began to make us think that maybe our journalistic priorities were too narrowly on what governments did and that some of the biggest human rights issues actually had to do with society rather than with governments. Hmm. I, I've been really intrigued also by how you have then become very interested, even in a scientific level, at... Um, how people will respond to these kinds of stories, right? <clears throat> um, you talk about, I think I talk about, I've talked about outrage fatigue. We've talked about you know, compassion fatigue is a phrase that's out there. So what have you learned about, because even just what you just said about the millions, thousands and millions of death, um, right. I, I'm very aware that those kinds of statistics are debilitating and paralyzing for people. And you're you're right. Um, my fascination with the science of this, with the um, the social psychology and the neurology of this, really grew out of my my frustration with what I was writing about Darfur. I was you know, I'd go out to Darfur and I'd see um, these villages burned down, kids massacred, women raped, and I would write these columns, and it just felt like they were just disappearing into the pond without a without a ripple. Mm -hmm. And meantime, at more or less the same time in New York, I don't know if you remember, there was a, a red-tailed hawk named Pale Male that got no. pushed out of his uh, his I didn't. Nest. I don't remember that. Well, there was a there was a it was a, a a pair of hawks, and the male was called Pale Male, and he was uh, living in a in a condo building um, on Central Park, and he was evicted uh, by the building. And New Yorkers were just up in arms about this homeless red-tailed hawk. Mm. And I was sort of frustrated that I couldn't get the same reaction for um, hundreds of thousands of people being driven out of their homes as for one red-tailed hawk. And so that led me to look at the work in neurology and, and social psychology about what makes us care. And as you suggest, it's it's not about uh, numbers. It's not about statistics. It's really about an emotional uh, connection, and and it's the emotional parts of the brain that uh, light up when the brain is being uh, imaged uh, that lead to a some kind of a, a moral decision. It's not the rational parts. Right. And there's some way you put that in somewhere. You said that the, that the emotional response becomes a portal, and then. Uh, rational arguments like numbers uh, can can play a supporting role. Exactly, it's really that, interesting. That, that opening, that connection, that empathy is really an emotional one. It's done based on individual stories, um, and we all know that there is this compassion fatigue as the as the number of victims increases. But what the research has shown that is kind of devastating is that the number at which we begin to show fatigue is when the number of victims reaches. Two. Right. Would you tell the story about uh, Rokia and Musa, the, the photographs that they used to, to illustrate this? Yeah. I'm, um, this is uh, from the work of uh, a psychologist called uh, Paul Slovic. And 
people were, uh, there were experiments where people were shown uh, a photo of a starving girl from Mali uh, called Rokia, a seven-year-old girl, and asked to contribute in, in various, um, and there were various different scenarios, and, uh, and then also a boy named Musa. And essentially people would donate uh, you know, a lot of money if they saw that Rokia was hungry, they wanted to help her, they wanted, likewise, when they saw a picture of Musa, they wanted to help him. But the moment you uh, put the two of them together and asked people to help both Rokia and Musa, then at that point, donations dropped. And by the time you asked them to donate to 21 million hungry people in West Africa, you know, nobody wanted to contribute at all. Because they're overwhelmed by that, or it, or it, doesn't, it doesn't spark the same reaction that, that actually enables people to act. Is that... Yeah, I think it's not real. I mean, I think that, you know, mm-hmm. in evolutionary times, um, we could never have been exposed to these large classes of people. And so we don't really have a biological framework to feel empathy for this very large group. But we sure can feel compassion and empathy and want to help to, you know, a particular seven-year-old girl in front of us. And so uh, my job as a journalist is to find... Um, find these larger issues that I want to address, but then find some microcosm of it, some uh, rokia mm-hmm. who can open those portals and hopefully get people to care. And once that portal is open, then you can indeed begin to put in some of the background, some of the context, uh, some of the larger issues, and hopefully get people to engage with that issue. And, you know, again, in this documentary film, Reporter, where these, I, I, I think it was, I mean, the, the narrator is young, and I'm kind of se- feeling like this was a young team of documentary filmmakers. Is that, was that right? Or am I imagining um, yeah, that? Yeah, that's, that's reasonably true, and which I, means younger than me. Younger, <laughs> yeah, younger than me. And so, you know, I, I wonder, I want, he, when he's talking, you know, that where you, in the Congo, he, he's saying, you know, that what you're looking for, you, <clears throat> you talk to a lot of people who've been suffering in a lot of ways, you see some terrible things, but he says, you're looking for your, your Rokia, for this story. Um, and he has some misgivings about that. And I wonder if you have misgivings about that, too, even as you're talking about the scientific, the scientific basis for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I periodically do. It, um, it does feel uh, sometimes a little bit manipulative. Mm-hmm. Um, the other aspect of it um, is that people connect with stories that are kind of ultimately positive or triumphant. They want to be a part of something successful. And so when Cheryl and I were writing uh, our book about women around the world, Half the Sky, we were very much looking for stories of individuals that would uh, plumb the depths of of terrible things that happen, but ultimately end on this kind of inspiring, happy note. And that in particular, I, you know, I worried a little bit about if we were, if, if we're selecting stories of women who whatever, have been trafficked or gone through a fistula or whatever it may be through some kind of deplorable sexual violence, but ultimately have triumphed in some unbelievably wonderful, inspiring way, um, then, you know, is that a little bit too manipulative? Is that going over a line? Is that unrepresentative? Um, Hmm. And, I mean, ultimately, that's what we did because we were afraid that, uh, you know, people are turned off by unremitting despair and you need to show that one can make a difference. But I do worry about that, absolutely. Another thing that it, it made me wonder, not just that, but this whole, this whole, um, this, the science of this and what you've learned, uh, that, 
that you could go and you could you could tell the whole horrific story with all the numbers, um, and that in fact would not would not mobilize uh, newspaper readers across the world the way one thinks it should. You know, I, I think that like, when you when you use the word genocide now, ever after after the Holocaust, as people do with Darfur, they use the word genocide. Use the word genocide. I think. I do. We we think back to. An idea we have, I believe, in the West, that if we'd only known, right, if it had only been covered, that Holocaust, that surely it wouldn't have unfolded as it did. I don't know. I think that what some of the stuff you're learning suggests that 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 might not be true. Darfur is, I think, um, a window into that issue because in past uh, genocides, one could make the argument not always terribly effectively, but one could at least try to make the argument that at the time the killing was going on, we didn't really fully know. We didn't Mm -hmm. have a complete appreciation of just how awful it is. And if only we had known. And in fact, in the case of Darfur, um, we knew exactly what was going on. And it was on television, it was in the news. And, you know, it has now uh, gone on in one degree or another longer than World War II did. Right. Something else I, I wonder about is, um, the, now, Dar- I think maybe this gen- covering Darfur, covering genocide is, is also, it's, a, it's about pictures and it's about stories. But there are other kinds of um, tragedies and, and atrocities um, many, you know, many of the kinds of things you talk about, for example, your work with your wife, Cheryl Woodon, on, on women that takes many, in, in many kinds of situations and many different issues that are named. Um, the, there are kind of words and phrases that, uh, that many of us, that people go around thinking themselves should be galvanizing, mobilizing, like human rights or injustice. Um, and yet again, see, so even in the work I do, I'm very aware that those words don't take us very far. And in fact, some of these words that we think are noble, um, I mean, peace is, is another example, are in fact very controversial, very politically laden. Um, they've got ideological connotations for some people. And uh, I wonder if you think about that, about about vocabulary and, and about having to shake up, I mean, even not rely on phrases that that one thinks should be effective. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm very engaged in what I'm writing about um, Congo or Darfur or any of these issues and really trying to grab the reader. And, you know, I know that uh, your average reader, if they come across uh, my column on the subway to work and they see that it's about uh, Darfur, for example, that, you know, Okay, they've got to be at work in 30 minutes. They know terrible things are happening in Darfur, but it's not really going to be relevant to them that day, and they're likely to turn the page. And so um, I try to use whatever mix of headline, um, engaging first sentence, um, uh, occasionally in the case of a headline, maybe a little bit of bait and switch um, (laughs) to to try to, uh, you know, to to suck people in. Mm Mm-hmm. And not assume that there's any code or shorthand that that is going to be universally interesting or appealing. No, and I, I think that in fact 
we tend to, in journalism especially, and, and probably especially in opinions, we tend to um, speak to our own communities. Yeah. And we tend to recite the arguments that are most persuasive to those who already want to do whatever you do, but are often least persuasive to those who come at this, you know, who, who are skeptical. So I would, I'd like, oh, what's going on? Do I sound okay? Sounded funny for a minute. Okay. Um, I'd like to talk about some of the things that you've written about that you've learned uh, in all your travels, in all the stories you've covered that I think are counterintuitive. Um, <laughs> okay. But it might sound counterintuitive. So, for example, I, I kind of I started thinking. I wrote down this realpolitik of compassion, which is because you know you you are you are out there uh, representing, embodying compassion for many people, trying to spark it with your work. But uh, but you're very pragmatic, um, and 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 you've learned a lot that I think might be surprising to people. For example. Um, you talk, and I think this was in the film also, uh, you're talking to the students who've come with you, and you, you talk about how just because there has been an outrageous injustice, it doesn't mean that the people, that the victims of that are any more reliable for you as people to talk to about what happened um, as the soldiers who may have co- committed the injustice. You said there's a ten- tendency to believe victims, uh, and that's, that's yeah. not necessarily right. Yeah, I, 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 I've learned this the hard way. Uh, okay. that when you uh, when you go out and you come across some uh, some brutal injustice, soldiers who've massacred people, then the immediate tendency is not only to feel sympathy for those who've been butchered, but also to believe their stories. And you know, in fact, it turns out that victims lie. Uh, just as perpetrators lie, and they are they are so outraged by what has been done to them that they often exaggerate. And you have to be just as meticulous and um, insistent upon verification when you're talking to those victims as you would be skeptical when talking to the perpetrators. Could you just can you give me an example of? Experience yeah, I, you had, yeah. Um, I mean, I I, uh, I think I first encountered that when I was covering Tiananmen in in China, and mm. I was on Tiananmen Square, and so I, you know, I saw what I saw, and I knew, for example, that there had not been a massacre right in the middle of the square. There, I'd seen people shot on the north end of the square in individual groups and so on, but there had been a group of students in the middle, and. There were a lot of reports that, um, you know, supposed eyewitness accounts about how tanks had run them over and uh, or machine gunned this group of students. And I knew that that had not happened. Um, and in fact, in The New York Times, we ended up mistakenly publishing a supposed uh, eyewitness mm-hmm. account um, that, uh, you know, had the, the moment I, I read it, uh, I, I knew it had been fabricated. And that um, you know that taught me this sort of skepticism um, about victims that I've just seen again and again, whether it's in Darfur or Congo or um, you know uh, uh, victims of human trafficking, whatever it may be. Something that really struck me in uh, in the documentary, and this is also things you wrote about. You you met a, a warlord, a, a Congolese warlord. Um, there was so much 
there's so much paradox there. I mean, I mean, f- for starters, right, this line between who's a victim and who's a perpetrator is so thin, right? Because, I mean, he started out as a victim. Yeah, and perpetrators usually claim that they are victims, uh-huh. and that, that is why they have to massacre the other side. Yeah. Um, then there was the the religious fervor, that Christian fervor, um, which yeah. seemed, which seemed. I mean, even so, I get I, in this case because it was filmed, I got to watch it too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I couldn't believe it when this warlord um, who. Um, you know, is was well known for being involved in mass killings and um, mass rapes and just brutal um, predations of, of, of people there. He came out with a button um, uh, on his chest that said, Rebels for Christ. Right. And, um, you know, where did that come from? Um, and he, you know, announced that he was a Christian pastor, that he uh, had a little uh, chapel uh, right in this building we were in. Um, and in fact, before we um, uh, were, uh, he, he then served us dinner and, uh, you know, and said grace. And it, um, you know, you just wondered where this all came from. And I think that, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe some element of it um, was sincere. I think also that he perceived that this was when um, President Bush was in the White House and that he perceived oh, right. that perhaps uh, there would be a little bit more support for a uh, warlord who seemed to be a Christian warlord. I have to tell you that I was watching this and my 12-year-old son walked in and he hadn't seen anything else, but he, he, just, he said, you know, those guys don't seem so bad. <laughs> <laughs> And, and you know what he was seeing too. I mean, there was a real charisma um, about that. Not the warlord, maybe not so much, but the people around him. Yeah, um, and I mean, frankly, that is often true. That uh-huh. um, you know, if you go and uh, I, I often do try to go out and sort of seek out the perpetrators um, uh, because. Partly because I frankly I want to understand what it is that drives some people to go and and butcher children, uh, uh, and you know what makes those people tick. But do you and, do you learn? I mean, what have you learned about that? I, I've learned that people have an amazing capacity for self delusion, um, to feel themselves threatened, and that this is the only way to address the risks to. Uh, those they care about, and that in general, even the most savage butchers will um, treat their own uh, little community, their own clan, their own friends, and uh, fortunately for me, their invited guests hmm. with um, you know considerable courtesy and warmth and friendship. Hmm. I mean, how does that, if I just, this this idea of what it means to be human, I mean, how does that change your thinking about humanity and the world your children are growing up in? I think that um, when we, when Cheryl and I lived in Japan, uh, I was fascinated with the older generation of uh, Japanese who had committed um, unbelievable atrocities in China, the Philippines, uh, at so many places, and yet were the most courteous, um, civil, 
mm. um, people who I could have imagined. And I interviewed an awful lot of them. And I think one of the things that struck me was just how fine a line it is and that when you feel threatened uh, and um, when there are especially kind of a group of you, this mob instinct can take over and you, we are capable of uh, doing things that, um, you know, ultimately later we can't believe we did, that we're ashamed about. And I think this is something that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a human um, tendency that we really need to push back against uh, very deeply when we do feel these kinds of fears. I think something that, that's related to that that you also uh, have emphasized is is the importance of security and uh, maybe even uh, taking precedence over whether we're talking about democracy, right? Or you're saying that it has sometimes is a that it is a prerequisite for helping alleviate poverty. And I, I'm not sure that's a message people want to hear. It's something that's come through so much in my conversations about a lot of subjects over the years. Also, that one of the things. It's in this culture, in the U.S., that we take for granted and don't realize we take for granted, don't realize how much it makes possible. It's the rule of law, <laughs> this yeah, seemingly um, simple fact of life. Um, yeah, the, I mean, there there is always the tendency to think that uh, the most humanitarian thing you can do is to go build a school, build a hospital. Um, and I remember in Central African Republic coming across a um, clinic that... Um, well, the, the only thing left of it was a little sign out front saying uh, built by the German aid agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, because people were willing to build clinics, but they weren't willing to help provide security. So some warlord had come through and burned it. And um, who knows what had happened to uh, the doctors and the nurses and the patients. And, uh, you know, I saw, saw the same thing in um, in Chad, for example, that once you lose security, then uh, farmers can't go into their fields, um, so they starve. Um, you know, people sometimes sell their daughters. They just uh, you can't begin to address other humanitarian needs until you begin to address security. And um, I think that that, especially in the aftermath of Iraq and the mess right, in Afghanistan, right. is something that is you know is really hard for us to figure out how to do and even hard for us to talk about as a humanitarian issue. But I mean, where do you come out on um, who, who is responsible for, for uh, creating structures of security? Or, I mean, can that be imposed by external forces? I mean, are you, when you write about places like this, or, I mean, Congo is a great example, again, where you, I mean, a huge part of the problem is it's divided into these competing warlords, right? I mean, it's not just that cities aren't safe, roads aren't safe. Um, yeah. I don't think there's any one uh, solution that is going to fit different places. Um, the, you know, in Afghanistan, I think our effort to um, uh, impose security by sending in 100,000 troops um, is essentially failing and uh, is a $100 billion a year failure. It's an unbelievably mm-hmm. uh, expensive failure. Um, On the other hand, there have been uh, places like um, Liberia or Sierra Leone where a really, really modest um, uh, contingent of forces or even a ship offshore 
can provide can just tip the balance toward mm. a little bit more security and that ultimately then builds upon itself and creates order. I, I think so much depends on what local people want and you know whether they ultimately welcome us or UN peacekeepers or whatever it may be, welcome those outsiders or whether they are suspicious of them as uh, people who want to steal their oil, uh, impose, right. you know, infidels who want to impose some kind of foreign belief system. Um, so I think I, there's no cookie-cutter solution there, but there are some places where I think we can do a better job of helping create uh, that kind of order and going after these uh, warlords um, who... Uh, you know, in the Lord's Resistance Army um, in in the the, the, the where uh, Central African Republic and Sudan and Uganda come together is this you know one of the most brutal organizations in the world, and for two decades it has been um, destroying this vast area because people can't farm, they can't live in the villages um, because the, the the rebels come through and kill people and kidnap them. And you think that 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 needs outside intervention. Yeah, that's, I think, a good case where uh, uh, outsiders, um, you know, with helicopters, with planes, with satellites uh, can figure out where those rebels are, can um, help uh, local forces and local villagers and and where that assistance would really be hugely welcomed um, and can go in and, and, um, and destroy them. And once that is done, then you can begin to build schools, clinics and, um, and, you know, and all these other kind of humanitarian steps. So um, you you have been criticized, or there was a there there have been some um, critical exchanges on your coverage, for example, of Africa. How, you know, there have been there were some charges that you um, tend to portray the victim African and the white savior, um, and um, I, but I think that that's a that's a charge that's leveled. Um, you know, broadly, that that that's something that people have to be. You know, that that's that's an image that's out there, and it it may be a problem. Um, I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think it's. I think I think frankly that that's a somewhat fair charge. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I um, I do. Yeah, you know, I do periodically write about uh, African heroes and, and so on. But it is true that. Probably disproportionately, when I go out, uh, I will find somebody who has a uh, American connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the reason again is that that is what uh, it's hard enough to get readers to um, uh, read about and care about some kind of distant crisis. And if you don't have any connection, anybody they can relate to, then you've d- you've lost. Uh, but if you can have somebody in there who builds that connection, uh, then you're more likely to get people to uh, to read and ultimately to make a difference. To get involved. I'm just curious how you respond to uh, 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 some African voices, say, for example, the economist Mbisa Moyo and, and others who are really saying that Africa, Africans have experienced themselves to be defined by their needs and, and that, that, that white people and Westerners coming in to solve their problems for them has inhibited them from creating their own infrastructure, their own rule of law, their own solutions to poverty. Um, I'm, I'm curious how you react to those ideas that are out there now and to that, to that discussion that's taking place. Um, again, I think that there is some truth uh, to that. I think that um, it's worth 
that, that one of the things that, that that crowd gets absolutely right is that helping people is a lot harder than it looks, and that the um, you know the kind of foreign aid contingent has sometimes been too glib about how easy it is to solve problems um, to make a difference. And one of the things you know I've learned over and over is um, that everything goes wrong, things are unplanned. You just uh, um, uh, and I mean, you also write about how some of the things that we look at as problems, like a sweatshop, I mean, you've written a lot about this, is not necessarily the problem right, that we imagine that it's... That's true. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm one of the few Americans who is uh, truly sympathetic to sweatshops, really because of the time I spent in Asia and, and uh, seeing the way they became an avenue for people to, um, to, to, to kind of ride the escalator... Uh, up and mm-hmm. that they provided uh, a lot of employment for people, which I mean, tended to be wretched jobs, but usually not as wretched as uh, working in a rice paddy or in construction jobs or um, selling cigarettes in the street or just uh, you know a million other jobs that tend to be uh, available. And my fear has been that the um, hostility to sweatshops has meant that manufacturers don't go to Africa. I mean, Africa's problem mm-hmm. isn't that it has sweatshops, it's that it doesn't have any sweatshops. Mm. Um, and typically the only thing worse than a sweatshop is indeed no sweatshop at all, no no employment whatsoever. Um, um, so, the, I mean, I guess the other thing that I, I really do um, worry about, and um, I mean, if I were if I were critiquing my own okay. <laughs> approach, yeah. um, then um, just between you and me, okay? okay. Right. <laughs> um, I won't tell anyone. You know, <laughs> it would be um, not so much the you know the white heroes bit, and um, uh, and but it would really be this question that often I focus on things that go wrong. That when I write about Africa, for example, so much of it is about the Congo or Sudan or about AIDS in Southern Africa um, or about malaria or pneumonia, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And that, that that conjures an image in the reader of a continent that is completely screwed up, that doesn't have anything uh, working out for it, and that the upshot of that is to uh, dampen tourism, dampen business investment, and just leave people discouraged about the, the possibilities of the continent in a way that is really misleading. I mean, there are a lot of parts of Africa that have been incredibly successful. And so um, that's, you know, that is something that, um, that troubles me and that I kind of, I, I try to adjust my coverage to, to convey that that more complicated reality, but um, I, uh, you know, that is something that I, that I worry about in in my kind of reporting. Do you um, think that your uh, your early experiences in Asia and your enduring interest in Asia gives you a, diff- a certain kind of perspective on the possibilities in Africa's future? Yes, I'm always struck that um, development experts who spent their careers in Africa tend to be pretty pessimistic and they, you know, that development is just difficult and tough and you strive and, you know, maybe you'll make a little bit of difference somewhere. Meanwhile, development experts who spent their time in Asia, they sort of assume, ah, you toss out a few seeds and, you know, (laughs) next day you'll have a big field. Um, And uh, so uh, I, in my time abroad, I saw the sprouting of China, um, 
of, well, I mean, South Korea, Taiwan, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, all these, these countries. And they had different, um, different economic models. It wasn't you know, one precise model, mm-hmm. but uh, it led you to believe that um, places are not hopeless and that we really can um, see just complete transformations that end up more or less eliminating the worst kinds of poverty. And and even knowing all the places you've been in Africa, even you know the, the focus you've had on places like Congo and Sudan, I mean, can you even imagine that that kind of hope um, and that kind of transformation there? Oh, I absolutely can. Uh, and I think in you know in some places in Africa, we're really beginning to see it. Um, Mozambique used to be just one of the most um, depressing, uh, impoverished places on earth, and um, since the war there ended, it became uh, one of the more rapidly growing and a a lovely country. Mm. Rwanda, since the genocide, has um, prospered and is uh, just a, you know, wonderfully tidy and efficient uh, country, Um, somewhat repressive, but but just booming. Um, And, um, uh, um, you know, in West Africa, um, Ghana is uh, something of the same. So, I think increasingly we are seeing examples that, um, you know, challenge the stereotype of Africa's failure and really point to the possibilities. Mm-hmm. I also think, I mean, just worth, it's just worth underlining that the, 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 the different countries and cultures you saw grow and be transformed in Asia had, were dealing with big problems and difficult histories as well, right? I mean, I think Americans have this idea also of, us as just having been immediately successful and not having any issues. And in fact, that this democratic project took decades and centuries to become what we think of it as now. That's right. And I mean, it was really um, kind of looking at uh, Asia's success and trying to figure out what the lessons of it were mm-hmm. that got me interested in this question of the role of women. Because um, while the economic model was different in each Asian country. One of the common themes was that they educated girls in a way that traditionally had not been true and then brought them into the formal labor force. Hmm. Um, And as a result, they ended up hugely expanding uh, the labor force, um, tremendously expanding productivity and um, creating this kind of a virtuous cycle uh, of economic growth which I think is also kind of similar. I think one of the explanations for um, Americans' uh, prosperity over the last uh, couple of centuries is that women uh, were a, you know, they were not marginalized. They mm. were uh, a part of the economy, a part of society, um, and that a country just cannot uh, grow if it's got one hand tied behind its back. Mm. So I, I do want to talk to you about religion because you've written so interestingly about religion as well. And that's, that's actually a good um, starting point because you're, you're really clear that, um, uh, you know, that, that the way um, – I remember this column you wrote about the elders at, at, at approaching these issues of women, which is a consortium of people like Desmond Tutu, Mary Robinson, who am I forgetting in that group, is – uh, Nelson Mandela, Jimmy Carter, uh, yeah, um, um, right, and that they you had a, there was a quote in there from Mary Robinson who said, "If there is one overarching issue for women, it's the way religion can be manipulated to subjugate women." And and I think that there are lots of stories and images of that out there now. It's it's clearly 
a reality. And you, though, and even as you point at that, you, you, you've taken, it seems to me almost to your own surprise, you've come to a very complex understanding. Uh, you know, you have also pointed out in other places that Pentecostal and evangelical churches have done a lot, have been emancipatory forces for women in some parts of the world, especially in Africa. Yeah, I think it's a hugely complicated uh, reality. And, um, um, you know, you mentioned uh, Pentecostals. I mean, I've got, um, you know, nothing in common with Pentecostals uh, theologically or in terms of social policy. Um, but when you go around rural Africa, uh, you know, it strikes you that, A, not only are Pentecostal churches absolutely everywhere, but that they really have become in many ways, a force for um, the emancipation of women in a couple of reasons, unexpected ways. One is that because they um, discourage people spending money on alcohol, which tends to be a major way that um, that disposable incomes get spent, hmm. um, that you know, in those families that uh, join a Pentecostal church, there tends to be a little less money going to alcohol and a little, little more money going for their children's education. Um, and that women also in Pentecostal churches um, tend to ha- have much more of a, uh, a role than in the more mainline churches. And that often for these women who are uneducated, who have never really played any role in society, it's their first chance to speak and to be listened to. Right. And it builds some kind of a sense of self-confidence um, and um, that, you know, is part of this process uh, of change. And, uh, and you know, more broadly, I, I, look at, uh, I look around Africa and, you know, I'm aghast at what conservative churches uh, and the Catholic Church have done in terms of uh, opposing condoms, for example, to uh, as a mechanism to uh, prevent the spread of AIDS. I mean, you know, it is uh, deplorable. There are, I think, an awful lot of people who died because of that opposition mm. to condoms. Um, on the other hand, you know, I also go out and I see Catholic-run um, orphanages uh, looking after AIDS orphans, Catholic hospitals that are often the only game in town at providing health care. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, – and, and also that, frankly, that um, often evangelicals and conservative Christians are more likely to donate um, money or more generous not only with their time but also with their, their money than more secular people are. And so I, I think that, um, you know, we're often um, – I think there's something. I think there's plenty to condemn uh, about the, the the kind of moralizing and the hostility to condoms, in particular, the hostility to reproductive health um, that results in more abortions in places like Africa. But I also think there's a lot to admire in terms of the tremendous uh, good work that the Catholic Church and that uh, an awful lot of Christian organizations are doing in the grassroots all over Africa. You know, I heard you. I think this is one in one of your YouTube uh, appearances on the on the New York Times blog that you you just you were talking about Islam, and you said that Islam is like the proverbial elephant that the blind man touched. And I'd forgotten what that proverb was, but then I understood it as you kept going. But that whatever you know that that what you encounter 
that there that you can encounter very very different aspects of Islam and also of Christianity as you're describing. I That's mean, right, um, and we you know we tend to to know the elephant of Christianity and tend to know that okay you can you know touch a trunk that is a, um, <laughs> you know, uh, some kind of a very liberal church in Boston and right. a leg that is a Southern Baptist uh, church uh-huh. somewhere else. And, and you know, we, we know that it's an enormously variegated um, uh, institution um, that is pushing in all kinds of different ways. I think we don't appreciate the degree to which that is also true of Islam. And... Uh, right now, our views of Islam are so much shaped by its most venal elements, by al-Qaeda, for example, or by um, Afghanistan. And, you know, those are true. Those are real components mm-hmm. of, of Islam. But um, I think it's also important to realize that, you know, by the, the, the most populous Muslim country in the world, um, by far, is Indonesia, which has, after all, elected a women president, um, you know, <laughs> right. and we haven't. Right. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. And um, so uh, it's, I just think it's a much more complicated reality. I'm, uh, I've just been, as it happens, I've been reading uh, lately some of the uh, 19th century anti-Catholic materials published in this country, in the United States. Fascinating. Yeah. It's fascinating. I think that there's some parallel between the horror of Catholicism that many well-meaning Americans had in the 1850s to the horror of Islam that many well-meaning Americans have today. Yes. Yes. There were Catholic churches burned. and That's right. Right? A, we forget yeah. the reason we have a Catholic school system is because uh, people, Catholics, couldn't be teachers <laughs> in public schools. That's right. And it was, um, I think in a similar way, it was, uh, the, you know, in general... The people who were um, – what happened was you know, you had a small number of real hate mongers um, uh, but a much larger group of people who were kind of worriers and they didn't really believe all – everything that was said about the Catholic Church but they were ambivalent and they saw these – these Irish coming to America or these others who they regarded as outsiders as having a different tradition. Right. They worried about whether Catholics would be loyal to America or to the Pope. And as a result of this kind of ambivalence, that created a climate in which um, a convent in Boston, for example, as you say, could be burned to the ground. Mm-hmm. Right. And you because of how much you travel travel in what you do you you've been able to gain just a, a, a very big view of the world and also i think at the different paces and the different places at which all of our different these, these continents and the countries and cultures within them are are existing right now coexisting uh- yeah i mean i've spent a lot of time in the uh, in the muslim world of course and pakistan is one of my you know, favorite countries, and I've oh. I've come across you know more than my share of um, really thuggish demagogic uh, imams and mullahs who um, you know try to keep girls from going to school, who believe that um, a girl should be killed if she um, you know has. Uh, has an eye on some boy or some boy has an interest in her. I mean, just really people who just just, you know, infuriate me. But I remember 
you know, but s- a certain amount of this is also embedded coming from culture rather than religion. And it's very right. hard to disentangle them. And I remember in Pakistan once, uh, you know, interviewing a woman who um, had uh, secretly married the man she 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 loves and now uh her family was trying to kill her and in fact her father and two brothers had uh kidnapped her they locked her up in the hut and they were just debating whether to uh, murder her which is what one brother wanted or whether to sell Mm. her to the brothels in karachi which is what another brother wanted to do and she while they were deciding for a few days, she uh, baked some chapati for them with sleeping powder inside and then escaped. But she was she was not a Muslim. She was a Christian. And <sighs> she was a member of that Christian minority. And it was just a reminder to me that these mm. views that are just so horrific and, you know, antagonistic that and w- that we sort of assume are emerging from the Quran, that um, they... Muslims may regard you know, those sort of more fanatical Muslims may regard them as uh, as Islamic, but that Christians in those places practice them as well, and that it's just a lot more complicated than it may seem at first. Right. You. Um, this was it. One. One other thing about religion. You. Uh, you wrote. I, I think this was in two thousand eight. I, I wonder. I'd like to ask you how this was received. You. You. You really wrote. Uh, and this is one of these places where you've you've actually written a, a bit over the last few years and during the early 2000s and during the period of the Bush presidency as you your understanding of who evangelicals are and the diversity of that movement and that tradition. Um, you wrote about evangelicals as the new internationalists. And you wrote this, um, liberals believe deeply in tolerance and over the last century have led the battles against prejudices of all kinds, but we have a blind spot about Christian evangelicals. They constitute one of the few minorities that on the American coasts or university campuses, it remains fashionable to mock. Um, what was the response you got to that column? Um it um, was uh, absolute outrage uh, from <laughs> from the coasts. Yes, um, and the university campuses. And the university <laughs> campuses. Um, you know, and uh, people who were, um, you know, incredibly in- indignant and saying that the, you know, these are people who are um, spreading bigotry uh, and hatred and the proper thing to do is precisely to stand up to that kind of hatred and bigotry. Um, from, I'd say from the evangelical community, um, I got, um, there was sort of a, a stunned but somewhat <laughs> <laughs> welcome, you know, people were, people were, you know, pleased uh, but sort of surprised. I'd, um, I'm not sure if it was that column or a different column, I, um, but writing about evangelicals work in Africa, I, the headline was, um, uh, hug an evangelical, yes. and a little bit later, <laughs> um, uh, one of the uh, evangelical organizations, you know, that I never agree. I, maybe maybe it was focused on the family, you know, of course, which I dis- disagree with a hundred percent. But they had a, um, a headline saying, uh, "Hug a liberal." <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> yes, we. It was the beginning of our. You created you know, empathy. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, you in some place you suggest that bleeding heart liberals need to reach out to bleeding heart conservatives, and I was asked, I was going to ask you if bleeding heart conservatives reach out to you. That sounds like maybe 
maybe yeah. an example of that. Uh, no, they they uh, they actually have, and I mean mm. that that really is something I believe in deeply. That um, you know, um, if you look at sex trafficking, for example, this is one of the true outrages on uh, the scene today. That there are probably more girls who are uh, trafficked against their will today than people who were enslaved at the height of the uh, of the slave trade. Um, and they are, uh, you know, more disposable because they're worth less money. Their, their sales price is, is lower today than it was in 1860 after adjusting for inflation. Um, so there is this huge issue here and liberal feminists, secular feminists are doing great work on it. Um, right-wing Christian evangelicals are doing great work on it. But because there is this incredible gulf of mistrust between them, they tend not to cooperate. And there tends, you know, you don't even tend to have a similar vocabulary with which to address the issue. Mm. The right tends to talk about prostitutes. Uh, the left tends to talk about sex workers. Oh, that's um, interesting. That the, thing. Oh. Uh-huh. And each side is just very suspicious of the other. But we're not going to make progress uh, on this. And, you know, we're not going to get those pimps in jail where they belong uh, unless left and right and secular and religious are more willing to work to hold their nose and work together. Do you have any sense of, uh, of movement forward on that? There, um, you know, periodically there are um, some signs of progress uh, on, on that issue, um, on uh, I'm... Uh, one of the things we'd recommended in our book was a major uh, effort, uh, a bipartisan effort to eradicate um, obstetric fistula around the world. Right. And it looks as if there will be a indeed a bipartisan bill um, introduced in Congress, you know, with again sort of support from the feminist left and the evangelical right <laughs> to do just that. So there are a few examples, but. Um, you know, the default position is to be deeply distrustful. Hmm. Um, I saw someplace someone asked you who your favorite philosopher was, and you said it was Isaiah Berlin. Do you remember that? Yeah. Uh, well, he, would um, you describe your answer to that? Sure. Um, I was um, uh, studying law at uh, Oxford and of course, law is one of the more boring things you can possibly study, which is why I ended up as a as a journalist rather than a lawyer. Um, but it's also why I uh, began sort of you know reading more philosophy on the side, and I um, encountered uh, Berlin's work and uh, met him. And I think what appeals to me most about um, Isaiah Berlin's writings is that. Um, so much of philosophy and so much of the Western world has been a search for the one true answer, and whether it's um, utilitarianism, whether it's some kind of a Kantian categorical imperative, or whatever it is that we try to maximize. Whether it's, it's the ideology of left-wing feminism or right-wing Christianity. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. But yeah. there, there is this search for the you know the one true answer, mm-hmm. and uh, Isaiah Berlin emphasize that it's more complicated than that and that there is maybe this deeply embedded um, belief, you know, yearning for one answer, but that in fact there are many different things that we value and 
they are incommensurate, that you can't, um, you want to maximize happiness, but the happiness yardstick doesn't really, you know, isn't, you can't make it link up with the um, dignity yardstick mm. or the human rights yardstick um, or whatever it may be. And that these trade-offs are just a part of the human condition and that we have to struggle and search for answers and at times acknowledge that this is a tentative answer. We're not sure that we're right. And yet even acknowledging that still act on that. And you know, one of the problems I think for liberals is that they become paralyzed by complexity and paralyzed by the possibility that they're wrong. And hmm. Berlin, at least to me, emphasizes that uh, one has to be conscious of the ability that we may be wrong, that we don't necessarily have the answer, and yet be willing to act uh, on that and and um, and you know act as if that is the right thing to do and the the, the moral thing to do um, and advance that cause, whatever it may be. So um, so Berlin um, just uh, you know in this very messy twenty first century world, Berlin kind of conveys a reality that speaks to me and that helps me resolve my own challenges in life. Mm. You know, I've noticed that a lot of times when people interview you, they they remark that you're less depressed and depressing than they expected you to be. Have <laughs> you noticed that? I, I know. I, 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 people must think that I just sort of sit around, that I'm like Eeyore. Um, you know? <laughs> um, and, you know, but in fact, you go out and, you know, you write about these these terrible things happening around the world. But I come back not fundamentally depressed by them as just inspired by by our capacity to make a difference, to respond, to do the right thing. Um, on that, that same uh, trip to the Congo that was in uh, the movie, we saw the warlord and, you know, I, I um, was infuriated by him. But the person who I think spoke to me the most on that trip was mm-hmm. a, a Polish nun in the town of Rutsuru who I met who was – there in this little town that had been pretty much abandoned by aid groups that was surrounded by warlords uh, where there were killings every day and she was single-handedly feeding orphans educating kids um, staving off the warlords and I was just so inspired by that kind of commitment to humanity to trying to make a difference um, that it ultimately fundamentally left me reassured rather than depressed about humanity. Hmm. It seems to me you've had a a pretty big year personally, too. And again, you've done that in public, right? Like you do your journalism (laughs) in public. I mean, that your father died. It was a very moving column you wrote about him. Um, Thank you. He was an extraordinary person. Oh, clearly. I know the death of a father uh, affects people in ways they don't expect. And I wonder uh, if this experience, you know, does this uh, shed any new kind of light or feeling on your sense of what you have done with your life? And I think that any kind of encounter with uh, mortality like that makes you conscious about what your own legacy will be, mm-hmm. um, what you want that legacy to be, and... Um, 
so, you know, I, uh, I think that probably, you know, that encounter kind of reminds me that I, I do want my journalism to make a difference. And um, I do feel as if I have, uh, with my New York Times real estate and with my books, a uh, just truly incredible um, spotlight and that I can wield that in ways that, you know, maybe at the margins can make this a little bit of a better world. I I think about, um, I actually think a lot about this, this Jewish moral longing and commandment, tikkun olam, repair the world. And, um, and about how for most people, I think what that means is, you know, repairing the part of the world that you can see and touch. And for most of us, that's, that's, that's pretty, um, close by. <laughs> and yet you do, as you say, have this big, huge platform and this, um, this large palette. Um, I, you know, I think that there's really a yearning on the part of so many people to make a difference, mm-hmm. but also a sense, you know, people are locked in their own rhythms of the day. They're busy. Uh, they worry about uh, corruption, about whether uh, help really will make a difference. And one of the things that has been so wonderful that Cheryl and I have encountered um, with our book is that, you know, we'll uh, give a lecture somewhere, often at a college campus. And then afterward, um, typically it'll be some young woman, a recent graduate who will come up and he'll say, you know, I just want you to know I read your book and I'm leaving next week for <laughs> the Philippines or You're Guatemala, right. <laughs> wherever it may be. And that they in turn are now, um, you know, not just reading um, and not just aware of things, but are now actually going and doing things. And it strikes me that in almost every case where we follow up that they go off and they think that they're going to go and empower um, Guatemalan villagers, for example, or, uh, you know, Filipino slum dwellers. And they probably do that. Um, But we have a somewhat mixed record in helping others. But those efforts have an almost perfect record in helping ourselves. <laughs> and whether or not they empower those Guatemalan villagers, they always end up empowered themselves. I, I can't help but be really curious about the balancing act that you play. I mean, you have three children, you have a marriage, um, and you travel a great deal. And you're clearly a person of compassion in general. I don't think you're one of these people who's compassionate towards the rest of the world and not at home. <laughs> I really don't sense that. Um, so talk to me about how do you manage this? And Well, <laughs> our, our kids are, um, you know, um, among the very few who uh, take their <laughs> vacations in, um, <laughs> you know, wherever in uh, uh, AIDS villages in China or <laughs> right. uh, I mean, the, la- the last family vacations we've had, um, uh, the most recent one was the West Bank. Uh, before that, it was Zimbabwe and Zambia. Um, uh, the next one will probably be Haiti. Um, and uh, I remember my my 12-year-old daughter, um, I was dragging her through um, Honduran slums uh, at one point, and she said, uh, Dad, you know, all my friends, they, you know, they go to vacation in <laughs> France and Italy. <laughs> Can we ever just go to a beach? <laughs> and um, so, you know, that is one way that we try to reconcile these things that I – you know, we Cheryl and I do want to show our kids uh, some of the rest of the world. It has been a source of unbelievable experiences for us to go with our kids to these kinds of places. Um, 
And but you know, at the end of the day, there are real trade-offs there. And again, there are times where I will miss my kids' soccer games because I am out in Darfur. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, one of the more terrible balances you have to do is the risks that uh, I believe deeply in covering some kinds of stories that can be perilous. And uh, yet I believe deeply in, you know, always being there for my kids. And um, so you, um, uh, you know, you try to uh, cover stories that you care deeply about where it is going to make a difference, but while uh, always ensuring for the sake of your family as well as yourself that you do so in as safe a way as you can. And you did have a um, a kind of brush with mortality, a cancer scare, very close to home this year, too. That's right. A, um, um, I had a, um, um, a tumor in my kidney, uh, and uh, so that was uh, uh, carved out, and um, the expectation had been that it was 90% chance that it would be uh, kidney cancer, which is um, is actually usually lethal. I was in the lucky 10% uh, that it was not a cancer. It was a tumor that is not cancerous. And so I'm uh, fortunately just fine. There's, um, you know, I was backpacking this summer. I'm, I'm, I'm all cured and there is no kind of greater risk down the road. So okay. um, touch wood, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. So I just want to ask you two more questions. Um, I wonder how you respond to... Um, I think I think um and I this is you know I have a bit of a media platform too and but uh I also I'm just so aware of I feel trade-offs I make or you know feeling like I have a very limited feeling torn <laughs> this is awfully hard feeling torn between you know my obligation just to give my children the best life I can right now for these years that I'm raising them, right? And which I feel so limits my capacity to be, gosh, even as compassionate as I want to be, as much less engaged as I want to be in um, great problems of the world that also concern me. I mean, you you have this profession that allows you, I think, with trade-offs of your own, as you said, to, to, to address, address both. But what do you say to people who just struggle with the practicality of? Well, uh, I mean, there are certainly trade-offs there. But in general, I think as parents, we not only want to read bedtime stories to our kids, but we also want to um, model uh, compassion, empathy, uh, and engagement. Mm -hmm. And those are kinds of things that kids aren't going to absorb because we tell them they're important. They're going to absorb because they see those are the things that we care about. And so I do think that while that doesn't erase the trade-offs, that uh, there are ways in which we can be engaged and um, to some degree, you know, involve our kids and get them engaged. Um, And, you know, in ways that actually create new bonds of experience and expose them in a way that a school never will. To right. And take worlds. those on as actually a, an essential part of raising them, right? Giving and, them a good life. Yes, and empower them. We, um, mm-hmm. uh, 
we as a family we uh, built a school in Cambodia for example and so we took the kids there for the opening and so they you know they saw Cambodian kids who were the same age as them uh, and who otherwise would not have had a chance to go to school and for whom you know the amount of money that they might spend on a coat, you know, would be able to buy mm. pens and pencils in a way that would be ultimately transformative for them. And and so I think that at least, um, you know, I, I, I can't pretend that um, the kids then never wanted to buy a soft drink after that and wanted to funnel right. the money off to, right. to buy pens and, and pencils. Right? You know, obviously it doesn't work that way. But I do think that those kinds of exposures um, and that kind of modeling behavior really is useful in helping to shape, you know, the kind of kids with the values that uh, we emulate and would like to um, to, to see in them. Mm-hmm. So just going back to an early story you told about uh, covering Tiananmen Square, which was a huge world event, which was on the front page of the papers for days, which won you the Pulitzer Prize, I think. Um, and then, as you said, in the year that followed, you and your wife, Cheryl Wudun, who's also a journalist, became aware of this, in fact, much larger tragedy that was unfolding all the time of, to, of violence to girls. Um, I just wonder, as, as you look at, I wondered if we could just look at, you know, big, there are big issues. Right now, we can all, we could all easily draw a list of what's going to be on the front page of the newspaper tomorrow. You know, Israeli-Palestinian negotiations some kind of uh, seeming clash between Islam and the West, climate change. Um, but I wonder, as you look around right now, you know, what are things you know about that are under the radar, that are just as important, um, that you're watching? Well, the, um, we wrote, I mean, the, the evolution of finding out what was happening in rural China towards women was eventually writing... Um, this book in which we do argue that just as the central moral challenge in the 19th century was slavery and in the 20th was totalitarianism, in this century, the paramount moral challenge for the world will be uh, the um, abuse that is directed toward uh, so many women and girls around the world. And so I truly think that uh, that is going to be one of the great subtexts of this century, you know, to get girls into school, to offer them opportunities to stop ride burnings, sex trafficking, genital cutting, uh, you know, this whole panoply of, of practices. Um, so I think that that is one of the great, you know, undercurrents and the question of whether countries can make better use of the female house of their population is going to be one of the things that is going to determine how successful uh, they are and um, how stable and peaceful they can be. So I think that would be one that I would emphasize. And another would be the question that for all of uh, human history and indeed for all of humanity, uh, people have by and large, or many of them have lived in poverty. And in this century, we have the capacity to really end that extreme poverty. And the question is whether we can really muster the political will and capacity to uh, take those steps so that it will indeed be eradicated. And I think the analogy you draw is very interesting because there was uh, political will and political movement uh, eventually around slavery, for example. I mean, from where you sit, can you imagine that kind of energy, that kind of action around 
these issues of women and, and of poverty? Yeah, I really can. Um, I think it's very hard to predict what issues will engage people, but mm -hmm. I think that just as in the 1780s, once people became aware of what life was like on a slave ship, then they were revolted by it and couldn't stand it. I think in the same way that, you know, once people um, realize what goes on in uh, in forced uh, uh, prostitution, mm -hmm. that they, you know, will react to it and will want to have those brothels closed down. Um, and once they also see the opportunity that is created by educating girls and just how cheap it is and how much that can bolster an economy, um, that that will be an opportunity they will not want to pass up. So I think that things are coming together and um, that just kind of change is taking place already. And, you know, the question is just whether we're going to end up watching it or being a part of it. Hmm. Okay. Well, this has been great. It's been just oh, great. It's been yeah. Really, my pleasure. <laughs> we will. Um, I think we know when this is going to be on the air, but we'll let you know for sure. It's in September, and um, we'll send you a CD if you Terrific. use those old-fashioned things anymore. <laughs> Terrific. Yeah, and I do hope we'll meet one day. Are you going to be uh, at the Clinton Global Initiative at all? I will be. Oh, I'll be there too. So I, let's uh, try to find each other. I'd like to meet you in person. No, I'd, I'd love that. Okay. Um, uh, I, I won't be there. I'm not sure which day it begins. I'm out of town Monday, coming back Tuesday morning. And um, then I'll be kind of in and out uh, the rest of the time. But I'll, I'll be there. I'll, I'll be there all those days. I'm moderating the technology plenary thing, which is Thursday morning. But I'll be around the other day, so I'll I'll try to find you as well. I'll I'll look forward to that. Great. And okay. In in introducing me, if you can mention half the sky, that'd be oh, great. Oh, I absolutely will. I'll mention half the sky, and I'm, we may read from it a little bit too. Great. Okay. Great. Okay. okay. Thank Thanks you. so much, Krista. Bye Take bye. care. Thank you, Paul. Take care, Ben. Have a great weekend.